Shabbat Shalom. I was thinking of a story I heard just recently about a pastor who was standing out in the foyer greeting everyone as they were leaving after service. And uh, one of his parishioners came up and said, uh, Pastor, I didn't like the worship today. He said, it's okay. We weren't worshiping you. <laughs> Food for thought. All right. We are in our spiritual warfare series, and this is fourth in our series. And today I've entitled this Spiritual Warfare, Fallen Angels. And what I want to talk about is the relationship of fallen angels with this warfare that we're a part of. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, and our war, as we've discovered, is with powerful ancient beings in the realm of darkness. And these heavenly beings rebelled against God and his ways and are now seducing humanity to also rebel against God and his ways. So this rebellion is both in the heavenlies and it's made its way to the earth. And we're a part of it. It's connected. So let's take a closer look at this fascinating and important view of our battle against evil in our world and how we're to approach it, interface with it, and overcome it. So back in Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13, this is where we've discovered, uh, you know, this whole concept of cosmic spiritual warfare. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. The rulers, the authorities are not flesh and blood rulers and authorities. They're spiritual beings in high places or heavenly places, the realm of the spirit, if you will. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Know well the military uh, uh, idea or concepts or word pictures that Paul has given us. We're in a war. We need armor. He says, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm. So these evil forces in the spiritual realm are the enemies of God. And they're also the enemies of God's people. It answers the big question of evil in our world. It exists because of these fallen angels. What, what they what they started in heaven and have also initiated in the earth is the, is the answer as to why we have evil in our world today. They rebelled against God long ago, and they inspire rebellion to this very day in our hearts towards God. So this rebellion in the heavenlies is connected with the rebellion on earth. Now, we looked at Jude. We spent some time in Jude. I want to revisit that by way of recap. Jude identifies the spiritual forces in our earthly realm in verse 13 as wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
fascinating that he would phrase it this way. Even more fascinating is that this phraseology is found in the book of Enoch. And in fact, it's found in other uh, uh, Jewish literature of that intertestamental period. It's a reference to the fallen sons of God in Genesis 6. If you're able to dig in and do some research, you'll discover that what Jude's talking about is fallen angels. It began in our realm in Genesis 6. It actually predates that in the garden with the serpent showing up, but finds its momentum in that Genesis 6 passage. These angelic beings that fell are referred to as wandering stars. They wandered from their heavenly domains and jurisdiction and came to our realm, cohabitated with women, created the Nephilim. And when the Nephilim died, their departed spirits became what is known as, in the, in the New Testament, as demons. So you have this whole unfolding of this back in Genesis 6. When Jude uses the terminology or the word stars, it's not to be taken literal. It's a metaphor for divine beings. Let's look at stars as figures of speech for divine beings. Let's go back to Job 38. We left off with this last week. This is one of many passages that describe immortal beings as stars, heavenly stars. So God tells Job, who's uh, been in a really bad place for quite a while and is really getting to a place of uh, anger towards the Lord and demanding that the Lord answers to him uh, and gives him answers for his questions. He tells Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? The context is creation. The context is the creation of our world. This predates human beings by a great amount of time. The formation of the earth comes long before he creates Adam and Eve. And he's saying, where were you when I was laying the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Code for know-it-all, right? Or who stretched out the line on it, or who, or what were its bases, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now again, we looked at this last week. It's Hebrew poetry, the genre of the literary piece that we're looking at is called Hebrew poetry, specifically Hebrew parallelism, where the poet writing in Hebrew says the same thing twice, just differently. So when he says the morning stars sang together, he says that again, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars are the sons of God, and they are praising God. The stars don't sing no, they have wavelengths, and they hum and buzz, and they, you know, but that's not singing. I don't sing. I kind of hum and buzz, too. But the point is, is that 
It's a reference to the sons of God worshiping God. They were there at creation long before we arrived on the scene. These are the divine sons of God. Let's look at a, another passage in Job. It's Job chapter 1. We'll look at this idea that the morning stars are sons of God. In Job chapter 1, 6 through 12, it says this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. These sons of God, who were back when the earth was being formed, long before our creation, the creation of the human race, those sons of God back then, we find them here, long after we were created, in the days of Job, and they're presenting themselves before the Lord. And Satan also comes among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Yeah. Where is this location? where the sons of God are meeting and presenting themselves before the throne in the heavenlies. And where does Satan come into that meeting? From the earth. He says, yeah, I was, I was on the earth in the realm of natural creation, and I was roaming about and walking on it. This presents the idea that in the heavenlies, the sons of God, these divine beings created by God, are serving him as sort of a divine counsel, that there's a relationship with God's heavenly beings that basically sit in counsel with him, that he's over them, he created them, they're his heavenly family, if you will. And Satan shows up, and God says, where have you been? He says, on earth, roaming about. Verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Of course he's serving you. Of course he's praising you. Who wouldn't? Verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Is it any wonder that the serpent later becomes known as the accuser of the brethren, right? He's the instigator. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. He departed from the location in the heavenlies where God was meeting with, with his divine beings that he created, that he calls his sons. And Satan now is going to come back to the earth, to our realm, and begin to do his work. We see heaven and earth interrelated, interfacing, and interacting. This is the, the whole concept behind... Um, a war 
in the heavenlies and in the earth and how it actually is the same one that connects both realms in this great attempt to overthrow the rule and reign of God. Let's jump down to Psalm 82, verses 6 through 7. I'm sorry, Psalm 82, we'll start in verse 1. It opens up with this. And this, of course, develops the divine counsel idea that we see back in Job. It says, God has taken his place in the divine counsel. Note that well. God takes his place in the divine counsel. Where does God live? In the heavenlies. He's in the realm of heaven. Yes, he comes and manifests here in our world, but his home is heaven. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, Hebrew, Elohim, the plural form for gods, the immortal ones. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Goes on to say, how long will you judge speaking to these divine beings? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all of the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's Elohim, immortal ones. He made them. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, sons of God, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you will die and fall like any uh, prince. Let me, let, me, let me say that a little bit differently to catch the impact of this. I said that you were God's, Elohim. The basic common denominator of an Elohim because there's a hierarchy within that. What they all share is immortality. That's what makes them an Elohim. That's what makes them a God. I said to you, you are immortal ones. Nevertheless, you will die like mere mortal beings. You're screwing up. You've rebelled. You're just absolutely out of control, and you better stop it. Because if you don't, I'll strip you of your immortality, and you will die like mere men who are mortal. There's nothing as threatening to an immortal being than the loss of his immortality. Now it goes on to say, Arise, O God, judge the earth. This is, this is the cry to God from the psalmist. You know, you take back the nations. You rule and reign over us. Don't let these fallen ones rule and reign over us. So when did they become rulers over our world, these fallen sons of God? Deuteronomy 32 gives us a worldview that is really amazing and insightful in so many different ways. But it picks up this idea of when this took place. So Psalm 32, we'll just pick up the reading in verse 7. It says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. Verse 8. 
when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man. He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. This is a reference to God scattering the nations at the Tower of Babel. This is when he scatters them and gives them borders. The reference here is, do you remember the Tower of Babel when God scattered the nations? This, by the way, is the third great rebellion in the scriptures, from the Garden of Eden to Genesis 6. And now at the Tower of Babel, they were supposed to go out and take Eden to the ends of the world, just like Adam was commissioned. That's what he commissioned Noah to do. And instead of going out, they said, no, we're staying here. We're not going to scatter. We're going to build a city and a tower that reaches into the heavens. Maybe they thought with a tower, the flood can't reach them. I don't know. Note the time period. This is long before Israel exists. So why the phraseology? That God set the boundaries according to the number of the sons of Israel. Let's go back to that slide. So at the end of that, it says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. And yet Israel doesn't exist. Abraham hasn't even been called out. Who's going to become the father of Isaac, who becomes the father of Jacob, and then through the 12 sons, will be called out of Egypt, or out of Egypt and taken to Sinai. So, so hundreds of years later, Israel's going to show up. But yet it says back here that he numbered them according to the sons. How does he do that? Well, you could say, well, it's, it's because he knows how many the sons of Israel will be at that time, right? Well, that, that could be. But maybe it's a reference to sons of God. The most ancient scroll is the scroll that's found in Qumran. And the Qumran uh, manuscripts are much older versions of the Torah, the Tanakh, than what we have in our Bibles. Ours are like 8th eight, eight century texts. These go way before the time of Messiah. And these ancient texts, when you look up Deuteronomy 38, uh, 32.8, they actually translate it sons of God, that he numbered those nations and their boundaries according to the sons of God, a reference to Genesis 6 and the sons of God who rebelled. Think about that for a moment, okay? In fact, the, the English standard version actually translates it sons of God instead of sons of Israel. That's a, that's probably one of the most accepted committee translations that we have today. And they're saying it should be based on context, sons of God connecting, of course, to Genesis six, answering many of the questions. So what we have is this, God disinherits the nations in their rebellion, he scatters them, sets their borders according to the number of the sons of God. Why? It implies that he's going to put those fallen gods over those nations, that they're going to be ruled by these gods rather than by the Most High God. Now, let's kind of pick up some of those ideas and see how they're developed. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Verse 19, it says, And beware not to lift your eyes towards heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away to worship them and serve them. 
those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. He's taking a people for himself, Israel. He's saying, hey, you belong to me. You worship me in spirit and in truth. Don't be like the nations who worship, this says, what? The host of heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars, the host of heaven. Um, It's really a reference not to astral worship, although it's going to involve that, but to actually those gods who left their domains that are referred to as stars and the host of heaven. They've been... They've been given to the people. They've been allotted to the nations in their rebellion. Now, this gets even clearer when we look at this passage. And I think I'm going to look at it. Yes, I'm going to look at Deuteronomy 17 from the JPS translation. And we're going to note that the starry heavens are used in reference to the natural realm sometimes and also to divine beings in other places. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5, makes the connection between the divine beings being referred to as the stars of heaven and also as the uh, hosts of heaven. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5. If there is found among you one of, your settle- one of the settlements that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who has affronted the Lord your God and transgressed his covenant, turning to the worship of other gods, Elohim, and bowing down to them, and then notice how they're described. Notice how the divine beings are described. And bowing down to them, to the sun, or to the moon, or any of the heavenly hosts. The divine beings are being called by terms or terminology, such as stars, moon, sun, hosts of heaven. And then he goes on to say, You're in a lot of trouble, short and skinny, if you do that. These gods that the nations worship are false gods, and they're referred to as heavenly hosts, as the stars of heaven. And God's allotted them to the nations whom he disinherited at the Tower of Babel. It's as if God's saying, you want to be rebels? Go, get out here. I will not be your covering. I'll give you rebel gods. Rebels deserve rebels. Rebel people deserve rebel Elohim. You know, now that's me reading all that into the passage. I may be wrong. I don't think I am. You don't think you're wrong either. That's just the nature of who we are. But anyway, I could be wrong. But let's pick up uh, Deuteronomy 4.20. It says, but the Lord has taken you, Israel, The Lord has taken you and brought you out from the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So he's going to take him out of Egypt. He's going to judge Egypt, the earthly rulers, and it says that he's going to judge the gods of Egypt too because the gods are ruling over Egypt and they're influencing the pharaohs in how to rule with an iron fist through tyranny because that's who these rebel gods are and that's how they influence the rulers of our realm. He says, I've I've taken you out of that, out of the rule and reign of that dark kingdom into my kingdom, a kingdom of light where I will rule over you with compassion and wisdom and provision. Wow, kingdom theology, cosmic geography. 
So when did God initiate that plan to take a people for himself? He did that in Genesis 12. What's the chapter before Genesis 12? Genesis 11. That's an easy one, right? Why do you even say that? All right. Well, Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel and the scattering. And it's there that God says, I'm going to take a people for my own. I'm going to start with Abraham and Sarah. And through them, I will take a nation. And he did. Jacob, the 12 tribes, the mixed multitude, came out of Sinai. And at Sinai, they signed up. They accepted the offer to become the people of God. Am Segulah, my treasured people. Now God has his own nation. All the other nations are not in covenant with him. They are alienated from him. They're under the rule and reign of these fallen gods. And you can see it in their culture, in their practices. They've been influenced through the rebellion of heaven to this very day. And God's saying, I'm going to take a people for myself. That's going to be my nation. And through that nation, as he promised Abraham, I'm going to reclaim the nations in the end. And that's what's happening through the gospel. God is reclaiming the nations and bringing them back under his rule and reign. He's doing that through the gospel, through the gospel, one person at a time. The kingdom of God is growing, growing, growing. Other examples of stars being used as figures of speech. I've got to rush this, try to get down to the end. The prophet Balaam states in Numbers 24-7, a star shall come forth from Jacob, what does that mean? That Papa Jacob somehow is going to birth a, 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 an actual star? I mean, how do you do that? How does a human being do that, right? It's not speaking literally of a star. Again, star is a reference to a divine being. A divine being shall come forth from Jacob. Who is that divine being? Well, the sages said this is in reference to the Messiah, and we know who that was, Jesus himself. Who is what? An Elohim. In fact, he is one with the Most High, Elohim. I and my Father are one. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, he's the star of Jacob. Think of his transfiguration, where he revealed that to his disciples. And in that revelation of his divine nature became so bright they couldn't even look at him brighter than the sun yeah a star if you will more to the point is jesus referred to as a star glad you asked revelation 22 16 i jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches i am the root the descendant of david the bright Morning star. Again, divine beings being referred to as stars. Revelation 120. As for the mystery, this is the, the, he, gives, he gives a vision to John. John gets to see him, and he's got lampstands and stars in his hands. He's got all this imagery, right? Which is not to be taken literally, once again. The genre is apocalyptic literature. It's filled with symbols. So we come down to the end. And it says in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, lamp the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Again, angels being referred to as stars. 
and the seven lampstands are seven churches. So in closing, we see this connection between these divine beings who have fallen, being referred to as the hosts of heaven, being referred to as powers, as rulers in dark places that somehow are here in our realm influencing us to rebel against the living God. And we see this throughout our world. We see it in, in the wars that we see all around us. We see it in the drug trafficking, the human trafficking, right? We see it in the, the fentanyl crisis that we have today. That's all that evil is inspired by these divine beings. And our world and, and leaders that don't know the Lord are corrupt to the core, swept away in greed and lust, a grasp for power. Tyranny itself is the art of the evil one. Yes, we live in a world filled with evil, and we're engaged in that battle. And Paul's saying, put on the armor of God. These are the real enemies, enemies that you have to overcome because the war has come to you. It's, a, it's about who will reign over you. It's about your soul. And in choosing the Lord, we then are called to enter this battle and fight against it and help other people also fight against evil. It's a war between good and evil. So I'll close with this. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm. Get ready, get prepared, get your armor on and resist evil. Resist it. Stand against it. Speak out. We're in a war. And it's time that we stand up and with the courage of the power of God's Spirit in us, speak out against evil all around us and reach out a hand to help people come out of it and be delivered from it. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, that's one of the things we do, right? It's a war of ideology. Yeah, truth is so important. God is the God of truth, not just love. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus later says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you want freedom from the, the chaos and the confusion and the darkness all around us, you have to get in his word, get his perspective, align with his word and stand against evil. That's how we turn things around. That's how we free ourselves. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure you have a relationship with Jesus. Make sure that you have his righteousness in your heart and life through faith in him. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Yeah, our mission is globalism. We're like everyone else. Jesus is a globalist. God is reclaiming all the nations. The kingdom of the world is going to become the kingdom of Christ, and we shall rule and reign forever and ever with him. It's a global mission, but it's through peace and not war. We advance the kingdom through peace, 
through the message of the gospel, not through violence. But we're globalists, and we're on the move. In addition to all that, taking up the shield of faith, with which you're able, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's a battle of ideology. And whatever ideology you buy into will then work its way out in your behavior and lifestyle and agendas. So be careful what you buy into, what you believe. Make sure you're in the word and you line up your mind and your heart and your ideas with the word so that you can be part of God's agenda, God's kingdom. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Helmets protect heads. You put a helmet on to protect your head. Why do you, why do you put a helmet on when you ride a motorcycle? Sorry, some of you don't, and I'm not making any judgment here. But you put a helmet on because you're trying to protect your head. You know, the helmet doesn't go on your knee. It doesn't go around your stomach. What? It goes around your head. Why? Because that's the most important part. You can lose an arm. You can lose a toe, lose a leg, going to be okay. Lose your head, it's over. So you put the helmet on, right? So God's saying, hey, or through Paul, the Spirit of God is saying, make sure you cover your head, your mind, your brain, right? Where ideas turn around. Make sure that you're lining up with the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be in the Word. Because the arguments out there for all this evil are pretty slick. And people are falling prey to them because they're not grounded in what God's saying about those same issues. Issues of sexuality, issues of greed and envy and pride, issues of, of dominance in the area of like uh, business. You know, we do things differently in the kingdom of God. So we need to protect our minds, our rationale. And our weapon, the sword that's been given to us, it's the word of God. In our discussions with people all around us, I think we, we can do a better job in those discussions saying, hey, that's an interesting point. You know, God's word says. Or, you know, that's a great point, but what do you think about this? God's word says. Get into dialogue with what God's saying. It's not about your idea. It's about what is God saying. Now, you might have an angle on what you think God's saying, but so might they. But it, it encourages a dialogue that centers back on what God is saying. And that's where the battles are won or lost, in the realm of ideologies. With all perseverance, it says, pray, petition, at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be in the Word daily. Here's the PowerPoints. Number one, be in the Word daily. Make that a high priority. It's about your life, it's about your liberty. It's about your happiness. Be in the word daily. Pray daily. Have a time in which you're reaching out to God and connecting with him and building that relationship. And then live courageously and ask God for opportunities to engage people, to help people come out of darkness and into the light. Help them one step at a time. Be there for them. Be that witness. Shabbat Shalom.